As we get started this morning, just on a personal note, I want to encourage you guys to, as Doug mentioned, really consider being a part of the family conference this year. Um, I was telling Terry this week how excited I was having prepared for that first session on Friday night. In fact, I wish it was tomorrow. Uh, because these, these thoughts have been ruminating in, in our minds for over a year now. It, it represents the heart of the elders. It represents the heart of, I believe, most of the people in this church. And I think it really helps us understand what it looks like to be faithful in not just our nuclear family, but in our church family. And so I really believe that the Lord has some great things that I am totally thrilled to walk through together with you. And so I would just ask you to mark your calendar and make it a priority and please uh, make plans to be a part of that time. Um, I really believe you'll be glad you did when it's all said and done. Um, I know October is busy. We were, I was visiting with Chuck Williams this morning and you know, I, I said May and October seems to be the craziest months of the entire year. I don't know why it works out that way, but it just is. And so just mark your calendar now and make it a priority that that's something that you want to be a part of. I, I believe you'll be blessed because of it. Well, last week, uh, as I mentioned during communion, Jason uh, did a great job of helping us understand how the wisdom of the world made its way into the Corinthian church and what kind of effect that had on, on those people. Now, how the Corinthian believers had rejected the way of the cross uh, in view of Bob Nyland. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you this morning. I want you to know, I've been meaning to tell you this. Sorry for the interruption. But my son, little Grant, prays for you every night and asks me, how's Bob doing? So, Grant, Bob's doing good. He's here this morning. I think we face that very same temptation in our world today to craft the message of the cross to match the life that we want to live. And I know that Jason did a great job of helping us understand that that's not the way it's supposed to work. That we are to come to the cross with a, with a heart of surrender. But we often prefer a life, as Jason did a great job of helping us understand that, that we would prefer to look at the cross and say that, that God has a wonderful plan for our life. And so we really focus on those things without regard to the reality that that includes sharing in his suffering. I know when I was in high school, I had Philippians 4.13 written underneath my baseball cap. And I often prayed that, uh, that, that that verse would be true in my game. That I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And man, I'd get frustrated when we would lose or I'd have a poor game because I was like, why God? Why didn't you come through? I wanted his help so much on Friday night. <laughs> and yet I really struggled to make it to church on a lot of Sunday mornings. And that's what happens when we try to craft our life to the message of the cross. I, I call it customized Christianity. <laughs> we just make it sound like we want it to be, using the values of the world to shape our view of the Christian life. But Paul has made it clear that the word of the cross has absolutely nothing in common with the wisdom of the world. They are completely incompatible. The word of the cross is foolishness to the world. As we talked about in communion, why would I align myself with the forsaken if I'm trying to be successful and make myself out to be somebody in the world? Why would I cling to the cross 
if I'm trying to build a a resume of self-sufficiency in the world. Like the Jews, we stumble over Jesus if we feel like God's next move is to do something special for us. Or like the Greeks, we can't understand the mystery of the cross when we try to apply human logic and worldly wisdom. I'll be honest. I don't know why God chose the way of the cross to reveal His love for the world. But He did. And I think the more we unpack that and understand what's involved and why He chose that way, the more we appreciate the beauty of God's design. The wonder of God's love. And I think that's some of what Paul's going to do in our passage this morning. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 26. So if you will, follow along with me. Chapter 1, verse 26. Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, many, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Let me just pause there and just make the point that Paul, after having addressed what was happening in the world around them, kind of brings it home and tells them to look inside the church, to be honest with themselves. He says, take just a minute and look around and let me ask you a question. Based on what Christ has done for you, he says, consider your calling. It's another way of saying, think about the circumstances that surrounded your having come to faith. And with that in mind, it's as if Paul looks into that audience of the Corinthians and he says, let me ask you to raise your hand if you feel like God chose you because you were brilliant. Anyone? Does anyone feel like God would have a hard time running the universe unless you were on his side? No? I mean, if we look at the world, that's what a good CEO does, right? They hire somebody who is strong in the areas where they're weak. Is that why God chose you? He says, well, if that's not the case, then what about those who are mighty? The word he uses here is a word that's intended to communicate a a power through influence, whether that's political or social. He's saying, how many of you were chosen because of your resume? Because of your credentials. Again, like a good CEO, he looked at your resume and says, man, I got to have this one. Did you see what he's done? Is that why God chose you? Because of your resume? Then he turns and says, what about those who are noble born? How many of you feel like God chose you because of your last name? I mean, after all, if you're a Christian, your parents were Christian, you were born a Christian, right? No. No. That's not the way it works. You weren't chosen because of your wisdom, because of your might, because of your nobility. See, Paul wants the Corinthians to be honest with themselves and and to realize that the church is not populated with highly successful people who have earned their way into heaven. In fact, the church in Corinth was very ordinary in comparison to the glitz and glamour of that New York City style Corinth. They had come to a place in their faith that God 
looked upon them, not because they had earned his favor, but because that he loved them. They came because their hearts were broken by the reality of sin. Not what they had accomplished, but because of a debt that they realized that they could not pay. That's why they came. Those were the conditions of their faith. You see, the Corinthians in Corinth had gotten away from this. <laughs> they had come to that place where they had put their trust in Christ, and now they were living life, and all of a sudden the life they were living began to look a whole lot like what was happening in the world around them. They forgot that when God called them, they were equal in status. All of them were sinners saved by grace. Their church, like our church, is filled predominantly with people, ordinary people who share one thing in common. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And what we see in the church should always be a reflection of what we see on the cross. We're not here to impress people. We're here to love people right where they are, which is what God did for us. Our lives aren't perfect, but we are being perfected because that's the promise of Scripture. It says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Our relationships with one another should be defined by humility. We should be dominated by love. We should see, as we see on the cross, a heart that sacrificially serves one another, that is quick to forgive, slow to speak, slow to anger. See, the character of the cross should be reflected in the character of the church. What you see in the life of Christ should be seen in the life of the believer who has chosen to follow him. Which, as we need to be reminded, is very different than what you see in the world. That's not the path. And, and Paul begins to unpack that a little bit more. Look at verse 27, but let me start in 26 so we keep this in context. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen these things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one will boast before God. See, let's be honest. The, the world exalts the person who is wise. They admire the one who has influence. They praise the one who is noble. Success is defined by somebody like Bill Gates or LeBron James, influenced by somebody like Oprah Winfrey, and nobility like someone like Princess Kate. But none of these people, none of these people are defined because of their faithful love of Jesus Christ. But we idolize them anyway. Paul says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And, and when he uses that word shame, he's not intending to, to say that God is doing things to humiliate people. That, that's not what he has in mind. The idea of shame here has to do with this idea of judgment. And what he's trying to communicate here 
is that the foolishness of the cross is what brings judgment on the wisdom of the world. Saying that the worldly values of wealth and success and influence are rendered useless for salvation. In fact, you have to come to a place where those have no value in your life in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's the heart when you come to, cross, to, to the cross. In fact, if you think about it, that's what Paul said, right? If you will, I think Jason might have touched on this. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at this one together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. I want you to listen to these familiar words from Paul as he walks through his resume. Chapter 3, verse 4. He said, by referring to this... Oh, I'm in Ephesians. That's not going to be the same one. <laughs> Philippians 3, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But ever, whatever things were gained for me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I might gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. From the world's perspective, what Paul just said was absolute foolishness. Because what he just said was the things that he had accomplished, which according to the world's standards is what made him important. And he says, those are of no value to me when compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In fact, I would put all those things aside even to just share in the sufferings of knowing Christ. Do you see what he's saying? I would prefer to share in the sufferings of Christ than be se separated from him and enjoy the pleasures of the world. And that's the key. That's the heart behind what Paul wants them to understand. Because the more we value knowing Christ, the less we strive for the things in the world. The more we value the, the security that we have in Christ, the less we try to find security in the world. The more we understand our identity of who we are in Christ, the less we try to be somebody in the eyes of the world. I believe there will always be a temptation to adjust the message of the cross to fit the life that we want to live. Where God is more of a, an add-on to kind of help us achieve personal goals. But as Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and what? Die. 
when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's the message of the cross. The place where our hands are empty. Where we realize that we don't have anything to offer. And, and they have to be empty in order to receive that gift that he has given us. You see, we don't want to make the mistake of assuming that this only has to do with some point of salvation at some point in the past where we made a decision, as Jason talked about last week, to, to follow Christ. Good, that deal's done. My security's taken care of. And now I live life the way I want it to and I customize my Christianity to be the life that I think was most beneficial to me. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians, that's a terrible mistake. Because you'll never be able to match the beauty of what God's designed for you when you put your trust in Him. I think Paul's reminding them that what he wants them to understand is that dependence that he calls them to when he asks them to remember about that, the circumstances that surrounded their coming to faith. And that place that they were in in complete dependence upon God for His love and grace and forgiveness. He's telling them, you depend on that same love and grace and dependence every single day. I find it interesting, kind of as a side note, that the memory verse that I was memorizing this past week is in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. That particular verse just so happens to be the very verse that I believe this passage is, is written from. In fact, he quotes it, and we'll look at that here in a little bit. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Listen to what it says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me the Lord who is faithful in his love in his justice in his righteousness in these things I delight declares the Lord does that sound familiar it's exactly what Paul's referencing how many of you are wise on your own how many of you are righteous on your own how many of you have riches that are from Christ on your own. He's basing it off of that passage in the Old Testament. And by doing so, he connects the words of the prophet Jeremiah with the person of Jesus Christ. And so ultimately what he's telling us is that Jesus is that Lord. The one who is steadfast in his love. The one who is faithful in his justice and in his righteousness. All of which are displayed through the word of the cross. That's what's there. His love, his justice, and his righteousness. Paul is saying, let him, he's taking that Old Testament passage, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul is saying, the Lord is Jesus Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in Jesus Christ through whom you have experienced his love, his justice, and his righteousness. Now look at verse 31 in our passage. Start in verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written by the prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts 
boasts in the Lord. Here we're going to see the exchange when we put our trust in God's faithfulness to us. Paul is telling us that when we choose to align our life with Christ, this is how we are made new. This is the great exchange. This is why it makes sense from a biblical perspective to surrender your life to all that the world has to offer and put everything in on following Christ. And I think this is important. Because as we walk through, and I know what Jason said last week because I listened to it and I think he did a tremendous job, and I want you to hear us say, because we believe together, that the Christian life is not some miserable journey where you have to live this life of persecution while everybody else around you is the ones that are having fun. Because that's not true. In fact, I believe that the world is having so much fun because it's the only way they can mask the pain that exists in their heart. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, that's the only place that you can fulfill the emptiness that's in your heart. And you are made full in your relationship with Christ. The Christian life may not be the easy way, but it is the only way that is truly fulfilling. Because you're living out of the unending riches of who you are in Christ. And not just masking the pain with the pleasures of the world. In these final verses, I believe Paul gives us a picture of our inheritance. It's really just a snapshot. And I think he does so with kind of this heart in mind that we see in in a story about a man who wanted to give his inheritance to a close friend. And he explains to him that uh, upon my death, I've, I've written you in my will. And so you're going to receive a $10,000 inheritance. And, and he said, but I'm healthy and I don't expect to die anytime soon. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start paying you interest annually on that inheritance so that you continue to get things starting today. And then you'll receive the inheritance in full in that future day. But I want you to understand my commitment to you by paying you interest even now. And when we think about that reality, we need to understand that that's very much what Christ has done for us. There's no question that the bulk of our inheritance, the things that we are truly living for, are on that side of heaven. But we don't need to make the mistake that somehow we have to live a life of poverty on this side of heaven because we don't understand the riches of Christ until we get there. Because that's not true. He, like that story, pays us interest even now on an inheritance yet to come. There's several places in Scripture where you'll find that. One of them is in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Listen to what he says. He says, God has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his, his spirit in our hearts, and get this, don't miss it, giving to us a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Do you see what he said? Basically, he says, I promise you an inheritance. This is what you're going to get when you die. It's more than you could ever ask or imagine. But until then, I'm paying you interest every single day you live until that day. My spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee of what is to come. Paul wants us to know what our riches are in Christ. And so he tells us in that verse, he says, Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. Christ crucified is the righteousness of God. Christ crucified is the holiness of God. Christ crucified is the redemption from God. 
four things, and this is just the scratch of the surface, okay? He's just barely getting started. But he says, let me give you a sample of what you have through your faith in Jesus Christ today. This is the interest being paid to you. He tells him that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. And here's why. It's because the cross reveals God's plan to restore that relationship that we were created for that has been broken by sin. What we see revealed on the cross is the wisdom of God to carry out the purpose of restoring what sin had broken. Because the only way that was accomplished is if he paid the price for us. If he made a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. If he did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. When we look at the cross, it's not foolishness. Because the one who was forsaken did that so that we could be forgiven. And so we need to understand that that part of our inheritance is that God has drawn near. That he has sought us. That he has bought us with a price. But he goes on and says, that's not all. Christ crucified is righteousness from God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our punishment. Remember, we didn't have anything to offer. The only thing we could give is what the punishment that we deserved. And that's what he took. Paying that price on our behalf in exchange, which is really a bad deal on his part, in exchange for nothing, He gave us everything. The righteousness of God. So that way we don't have to build up a bank account. So that when we arrive at the pearly gates one day, we can show him the list of all of our deposits that then give us credit to enter the kingdom. Because it doesn't work that way. He paid the price in full. God has sought you. He has bought you. He has paid the price to be in relationship with you, beginning now and for all eternity. But he goes on and says, Christ crucified is the holiness of God. If you look at the the book of Hebrews, he tells us that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient for all sins for all time. Jesus paid one sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, yesterday, today, and forever. One sacrifice for all sins for all time. And it's a sacrifice that has set us apart so that we are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people after God's own heart who have been set apart, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the the kingdom of light. And so we are to, to live out that light in the world around us. He sought you. He bought you. He set you apart as his own. But that's still not all. It says that the Christ crucified is redemption from God. Like the Israelites, we were released from slavery. That slavery is a slavery to sin. And until Christ pays that price, there is no way that you can live apart from that power in your life. Sin is master over you. But the book of Romans tells us that when you've placed your trust in Christ, sin is no longer your master. Why? Because you're not under the law. You're under grace. The law is what condemns you. Sin is what redeems you. And so that gift, that reality began when you put your faith in Christ and it's true for you every single day. You're living out the inheritance, the interest on your inheritance. Now I want you to stop for a minute. 
and think about what we just talked about. Think about the inheritance that is promised and the interest that you are given the privilege to live off of every day until the day it is given to you in full. The God of the universe did all that for you. He's paying you interest on the interest on the inheritance that you will receive in full. You see, Jesus delights in his steadfast love and justice and righteousness. And since that's who you are in Christ, listen to this, that means he delights in you. Right? Isn't that right? If that's who you are in Christ, if that was credited to you so that you are living off the interest until that full inheritance given to you when he returns, then if those things are what he delights in, then that means that he delights in you. That he sees you as, your, as his child. Completely forgiven and empowered by his spirit. So let him who boasts, boast in Jesus Christ. Because that's why all this is possible. As we finish up, I want to go back to this idea of customized Christianity. Because I want to look at it in view of what we just talked about. And and I want us to consider, does it really make sense to try to be in control of our life and handcraft it the way we think it should be if God has done something so miraculous on our behalf? It'd be kind of like me looking at a a, a masterpiece, a, 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 a Thomas Kincaid or or a Monet, and setting it up on an easel and going over here on my board with finger paints trying to recapture it. See, that's what it looks like when we try to control our life when God says, look at what happens when I'm in control. Surrender yourself to me. See, I'm convinced that many Christians today are still trying to play the Corinthian game. Where on one hand, we profess a love for God, as they did. They recognized and would say that they were Christians within the city of Corinth. And yet, on the other hand, they were still not experiencing the joy, the power, and the presence of God in their life because somewhere along the way, they had started to chart a course on their own to live according to their own design. That's the Corinthian game. And here's why I think that's important for us. You see, we often see surrender as something that is intended to communicate stuff we have to give up, right? When you think of surrender, you think of people laying down in their arms. And so when we think of surrendering to Christ, we think of, oh great, now what I have to give up. But why don't we change that view? Let's think of surrender not on what we give up, but on what we gain. Let's think of surrender as the pathway to experience the fullness of God's blessings that he's promised to us. So it is no longer uh, something that we don't want to do where we we hold back or we pull back a little bit because we don't want to give up things. But maybe we need to realize that we're not giving up anything. We're receiving everything. That's what surrender in Christ is all about. You see, I think the real issue is not an issue with surrender. I think the real issue, if we're honest with ourselves, like Paul tells the Corinthians... (laughs) is that we don't trust God. Really down deep, we don't trust God. We lost our assurance in the the faith of God's goodness 
and grace in our lives. I think that's the real issue. But I hope this morning, as you think about what God has done on your behalf, that maybe it will renew your commitment to being fully devoted to following Christ. To not holding back, because to realize that in doing so, you are forfeiting the riches of the grace and and, and inheritance that He's promised you. That our ability to control our life and go our way is far less than what God has made possible when we trust in Him. So before you leave this morning, I want you to spend some time before the Lord. And I want you to consider the way you've considered surrender. (laughs) Is it something you've held back on because of fear of what you're going to have to give up? Or maybe do you need to look at it a little differently and realize that it's the pathway of the things, of receiving the things that God's promised? And, And maybe you need to be fully devoted and not partly devoted. There was a study that our small group is doing by Chip Ingram, and he offers some advice that I want to offer you by way of application. Write these three letters down, okay? B as in boy, I-O, B-I-O, bio like life, biology, study of life, okay? B stands for be with God daily. See, the deal is how possible would it be for you to develop a, a trusting relationship with somebody if you didn't spend any time with them? Is that possible? Of course not. It doesn't work that way in the relationships that we have with one another. So why would we expect it to work any different with God? So if we want to build a relationship of trust with God, then we need to be with him daily. And if you're trying to figure out where to get started on that, let me just make it simple for you. Go to one of two places, the Psalms in the Old Testament or the book of John in the New Testament. And don't complicate this. Read 10 verses, pick one thing. Ten verses, one thing. And then for the rest of your day, pray for that one thing to be evident in your life as you learn to put your trust in him. Be with God daily. I, be in community weekly. How selfish could we be to assume that we're good enough to do this on our own? That I don't need Scott Jacobs. That I don't need Jerry. That I can do this on my own. You see, if we are created in the image of God and God is perfect in his fellowship of the Trinity and he looked upon his creation when he saw man and said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he built within us the need to be in relationship with one another. Why would we think that it would be okay to work outside of that design? We are made to live in community. The Bible is filled with all kinds of one another's. And the reason is we need one another. We need to live in community with one another. We need to be distinct with one another apart from what we see in the world. And we've got to encourage each other in that. So be with God daily. Be in community weekly. And here's the last one. Oh, be on mission 24-7. You see, we've been called to live a life that has been transformed by the work of Christ. So that we're never going to reach a place in time where we're off duty. (laughs) When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we become his ambassador. Wherever we live, work, and play, we are on mission 24-7. So when you want to walk in faithfulness to Christ, then we need to follow these principles. Be with God daily. Be in community weekly. Be on mission 24-7.
and live out of the fullness of who you are in Christ. That inheritance that is one day waiting for you, but you're living off of interest every single day until that day. Let me pray for us. Father, we need to be reminded of these truths because the world every single day through all kinds of mediums is offering us what it, makes, what it means to make us happy. They're offering us options to, to live life in a certain way, to gain a certain outcome. And, and we're, we're quick to fall into those traps. And we look at the comparison between what the world is offering and all the things we give and what the Christian life offers and all the things we have to give up and think, I think I'll take the uh, curtain number one. I pray, Father, that this morning we would see things differently, that a surrendered life to Christ is not a matter of what we give up. It's a matter of what we gain. That the masterpiece of the life that God desires for us to live is so more incredible than any finger painting that we could possibly do on our own. So I pray that this morning that we would not pull back, that we would not hold out, but that we would be fully committed as a follower of Jesus Christ. That we would be with you daily to build that relationship with trust. That we would live in community with other believers, loving and caring for one another. And we would be on mission 24-7, carrying out the great opportunity we have to share the story of your grace and forgiveness and a life that has changed for all eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.